Some words have been robbed of all meaning. They've been used, abused, mangled, contorted, weaponized, and stripped of context. If we can't agree on what words mean, then we can't agree on much. This is Origin Story. In each episode, we take a key term from the political or cultural discourse and tell the story of where it came from, what happened to it, and what it means today. By exploring the history of the ideas, we'll try to get a clearer understanding of where we are now. My name's Dorian Linsky, author of 33 Revolutions Per Minute and the Ministry of Truth. And my name is Ian Zunt. I'm a columnist with the Iron Newspaper, and I'm the author of How to Be a Liberal. Hello, welcome to the second season of Origin Story. We're very excited to be starting with the first episode. It's actually about a person, not a word. Arguably the most important political novelist of the 20th century, Ayn Rand. Ooh. Yeah. And from you, of all people, what would George say? <laughs> well, he didn't try to set up a kind of a school of thought, which we'll be discussing later. Uh, it is Ayn Rand, 1905 to 1982, born Alyssa Zinovievna Rosenbaum in Russia, married name Alice O'Connor. Her four novels, The Fountainhead, Atlas Shrugged, We the Living and Anthem, have sold more than 37 million copies and launched the school of thought known as objectivism. Her fans include a lot of people in right-wing politics, Sajid Javid, Daniel Hanan. Paul Ryan, Ron and Rand Paul, although Rand Paul is not named after Ayn Rand, sadly. <laughs> Clarence Thomas, Peter Thiel, Donald Trump, but also Simon Cowell, Angelina Jolie, Oliver Stone, Ooh. Sandra Bullock, Vince Vaughn, Billie Jean King, Hugh Hefner, the rock band Rush, Ooh. Steve Jobs, Jimmy Wales, and Elon Musk. Mm, that is a fucking dinner party if I've ever heard of one. Incredible scenes. When the Modern Library asked readers to vote for their favourite novels of all time in 1998, all four of Rand's appeared in the top ten, but none of them appeared in the critics' poll, which is the, the story of her life. Her popularity spiked again after the 2008 financial crisis and again after the election of Donald Trump, when she was added to the politics A-level curriculum in the UK. Huh. Mm. I'm not sure if she's still there. These are long books. The OED definition of Randian is as follows. Of relating to or characteristic of Ayn Rand, her writings or her theories, especially those advocating individualism and laissez-faire capitalism. First citation is Newsweek, December 1957, in a review of Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged, which makes sense. There's nothing more Randian than a novel by Ayn Rand. <laughs> I think that's totally legitimate. Ian, I will, I'm, I will explain why I wanted to do uh, this episode in a bit. Why did you want to do this? Honestly, because she'd just been sort of floating around my whole life and I'd never dug in. And I mean my whole life. Like I remember being a kid and reading a Spider-Man comic and then, and and God knows how, as a kid, I, I read this, but basically, that her creator, Steve Ditko, one of the, the co-creators, was uh, Randian, was an objectivist, and, and did that in his comics. I mean, when if you think back to our comics podcast, Frank Miller from the Dunar Returns, he was hugely influenced by her. Uh-huh. And then you think about, you know, as you get older, like Alan Greenspan, you're always sort of told, and Greenspan, sort of, of the Federal Reserve in the U.S., was around these parties that she would sort of have in New York. Mm. And so I was aware that she was like an influence, but I just never dug in on the basis of who wants to read. 1,200 pages of Randian literature in order to get to the bottom of something that's probably false. But now I had an excuse. Well, you see, I also, I wanted to do it because she's such a bogeyman on the left, because she's maybe the hero of the libertarian ultra-capitalist right. Mm -hmm. And I probably believed, because I wasn't going to read her myself, you know, a lot of articles about her say that as a writer... As well as the person, they just she's just trash. And the Guardian, for example, in two thousand and nine, called her novels turgidly dull. But then I thought, you know, you don't get to be that influential without some talent. And I do think if you want to criticise her, you've got to take her seriously rather than seeing her as a monster. You know, there's a there's a thing that um, you know that uh, scholars of political philosophy, you know, a lot of them just absolutely refuse to talk about her. Yeah, they they just go, this is this is garbage. There is there is nothing here, and yet. You know, if you've got millions of disciples and very important people, well, you need to know what she was about. You can't just go, well, I don't think I'm going to bother with that. I mean, you can do because we both did. <laughs> but we decided on this one that we were going to read biographies, essays, interviews and three of her four novels. Yes. And I just I just want to start with uh, there's a New Yorker parody by Daniel Lavery of uh, Ayn Rand's review of the movie Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Oh, which wow. sums up. The, oh, wow. Which sums up the kind of the public impression of Ayn Rand. It's a very funny parody. An excellent movie. The obviously unfit individuals are winnowed out through a series of entrepreneurial <laughs> tests. And in the end, an enterprising young boy receives a factory. I believe more movies should be made about enterprising young boys who are given factories. Three and a half stars. Half star off for the grandparents who are sponging off the labor of Charlie and his mother. If Grandpa Joe can dance, Grandpa Joe can work. 
which is, I mean, it's, that's quite a good summary of, of, of objectivism. But, you know, there's, there's a bit more to it than that. Weirdly, I went through a real, like, at the beginning, I was properly excited by all the stuff I was reading. I was just, I've never read, I've never read anything like this. But when I got to the end of the three-week period and I closed mm. the last page and I, I was like, oh, thank Christ for that. Like, I'm so glad to not be in her head Well, it was anymore. a good experiment intellectual experiment i think to 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 go in as open as possible to basically drop all this kind of resistance that i built up over decades of just like this woman is awful i don't agree with her politics i don't agree with her view of human nature um i'm going to hate this but you you kind of have to go in being like okay well what is the appeal and to try and yes. and to try and see the appeal you have to leave yourself sort of emotionally and mentally open to that to occasionally thinking Oh, maybe. Do you know what I mean? And then, of course, it doesn't mean that I agree with it any more than than than, than I thought I would, which is, you know, not at all. Although you have cancelled all of your charity subscriptions, I presume. Well, altruism is uh, totalitarianism. So, <laughs> and obviously, so I've saved some money there. <laughs> so we're going to have to. We're going to do. It's quite an exciting one because it's not. Uh, it's not an abstract idea. It's mm. it's a person with a kind of a fascinatingly weird life that sort of explains and sometimes contradicts politics and her philosophy. There's a real, to me, there's like this whole, it, it's kind of a tragic story, right? Because she starts almost trying to create a philosophy to explain her own life and why she yeah. feels the way that she does. And in the end, the philosophy kind of just destroys her life. And, and you sort of, when you look at like the remnants of it that are left at the end of the story, it, it is a properly tragic story. When you look at the remnants of the detritus, it's kind of a moral parable about the yeah. danger of, of believing in complete systems. You know, that if I just sign up to this system, that explains everything, everything in my life, every, even the minutia of it, my sexual relationships, the art I like, the society I'm in, my economics, all of it can just be explained as long as I believe in this one philosophy, just like Marxism does, just like a few others do. And... The, the kind of suffocating blanket that that approach to, to politics does yeah. to the human spirit. It, it's a, it is a fascinating story in its own right. Well, in her letter to the readers of The Fountainhead, she paraphrased the novel's hero, uh, Howard Rourke. Don't ask me about my family, my childhood, my friends or my feelings. Ask me about the things I think. Hmm. And she said the specific events of my private life are of no importance whatsoever. Uh, We're going to disagree about that. <laughs> <laughs> So, here are the details of her private life. Um, so, uh, Alyssa Zinovievna Rosenbaum is born in St. Petersburg just weeks after the 1905 revolution. As a child, she's already hilariously herself. Uh, she hates the stories of Robin Hood, for example, because he takes from the rich to give to the poor. <laughs> she also dislikes uh, Russia in general, which she thinks is brutish, backward, and not wrong here, anti-Semitic. Uh, she worships her father, who's a successful pharmacist, and hates her mother. Uh, seemed her mother uh, was not a fan of her either. This is from Ayn Rand and the World She Made by Anne C. Heller. Very good biography. The daughter viewed her mother as capricious, nagging, and a social climber, and she was painfully convinced that Anna disapproved of her. Hmm. She's the brightest girl in her class, but she has no friends. She starts writing novels at the age of nine, which is probably what you can do when you have friends. <laughs> Now, the 1917 revolution is this kind of one of the major events of her life, shatters her family. The Bolsheviks confiscate her father's pharmacy and the family flees to Crimea, where a lot of kind of white Russian exiles were living. At the age of 16, she finishes her first novel, A Feudal Allegory of the Russian Civil War. Sadly, never published. Back in St. Petersburg, now called Petrograd, she goes to university and falls in love with Aristotle and Nietzsche, mm -hmm. two of the only uh, thinkers that she ever um, believed in, really. I, I think arguably... Maybe even only Aristotle. Only read, no, the only two that she ever really read. Right. Because, I mean, you don't just see much evidence of her actually reading anyone else, really. Still has no friends. Watching movies, brief obsession with America is the place to be. She particularly loves aeroplanes and skyscrapers. In 1926, age 20, she leaves Russia forever to live with relatives in Chicago. Can I interject for a bit here? Because I think that something like... She's in university. I mean, in a way, she's kind of lucky for the Bolsheviks in that way, because, you know, they were the people that allowed Jewish people and women to go to university yeah, in the first yeah. place. But of course, what you have to study is Marxism. <laughs> so she's getting a massive dose of Marxism early on, another complete system. Um, and at the same time, she's escaping from it by going to the movies. And her mm. stuff on the movies is fascinating because it's, you sort of feel like her version of capitalism later is the version of capitalism of like, 
a young Russian girl trapped in communist Russia looking at movies yeah, from Hollywood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's all the gleaming metal. And I think she writes beautifully, no matter what The Guardian or The New York Times. I think she's a very good writer. And like she, she ends one sort of long description of Los Angeles, never enough time in the day, stream in a constant wave over its boulevard, smooth as marble. And she ends it every night, an electric glow rises over the city, which is quite pretty and elegant, but also summarizes just this view of just like capitalism is not drudgery, uh, you know, having to go to work in hospitality or in retail. Capitalism is innovation and muscular and exciting and sexy, glamorous people. It's the future, you know. Yeah. And she thinks Russia is just even, even you know, and the Bolsheviks is still just like really a sort of backward shithole. <laughs> and America is the kind of the gleaming future. So in Chicago, she remakes herself as Ayn Rand. She needs a pseudonym to work in Hollywood, which is her, uh, her dream, to avoid immigration officials if her visa expires and it seems to conceal her Jewishness but also to create a character. She invents a character which is sharp and hard. Like she's upset. You mm. see this in the heroes that she writes about. The people she admires almost describes as if they're made of metal. Yeah, they're yeah. all angles and edges and corners. And the people she hates are all circles. <laughs> oh, wow, they're sort of brilliant. soft yeah, yeah. and round. Um, <laughs> and so Ein Rand, which is pronounced either Ein, which works Ein German for one or Iron. Mm-hmm. So either either pronunciation is sort of very, very telling. And one startling thing already is how selfish and ruthless she is. She not only leaves her relatives in Chicago behind, she then never mentions their help. <laughs> Cuts them off. Never wants, Because she wants to seem like she did everything herself. And in all her accounts of her life, she's always exaggerating her struggle. And that means just like anybody that gave her any help must be kind of erased from the record. Mm-hmm. Including, I suppose, if you think about it, her early childhood before the Bolsheviks, mm. it's a very wealthy it's, family. It's nice. You know, she has a very strong education. So it's easy. She can construct a story of arriving penniless, you know, in Hollywood, which she did as a very mm. young girl and succeeding. Yeah. Absolutely, she did. But before the penniless bit, there was an extremely expensive education surrounded by lots of the sort of social sort of, you know, encouragement that would allow you to perhaps have that kind of success. But look at how she gets started in Hollywood. She moves so Holly bumps into, or pretends to bump into, it's not quite clear, mm. maybe sort of staged it, the great director Cecil B. DeMille, who takes her to the set of King of Kings, his new movie about Jesus. This is very eventful because one, DeMille hires her as a junior screenwriter. Two, she falls in love with uh, one of the, the uh, bit part actors on King of Kings, Frank O'Connor, and they get married in 1929. Briefly, what was Frank like? Was he a, was he a Randian... <laughs> Hero. Uberman. <laughs> no. And and herein lies the sort of, you know, mystery of the whole thing. That he is a very kind of quiet, unsuccessful, generous guy. A bit cantankerous. But he's extremely supportive. I mean, this is a woman who, you know... She, in social occasions, she doesn't, she can't understand why people are talking about anything other than politics and religion. Mm. But as soon as they do start talking about that, she's incandescent with rage that they don't agree with yeah, her. Yeah, so yeah. she's obviously difficult company, right? And he will sit there passing her notes on suggested topics of conversation and how she might do. <laughs> really, she really needs him, right? Yeah. She needs him, uh, and yet he's he's kind of servile. I mean, at one point when she's running, she makes him put little bells on his shoes so that she knows exactly where he is in the house so he can't startle her at any given moment, which he willingly does. Mm. He drives wherever she never learned to drive. So he, he does all of that part. And in the end, she, she does treat him sort of rather terribly. He tries all these different jobs. I mean, at one point, he try, you know, he's a jobbing actor for a while. That never really goes very far. He tries to sort of be the guy that arranges the flowers in lobbies. That doesn't really go very far. He's quite a talented painter. That doesn't really go any far. And then you sort of get this really key moment where she's constantly trying to sort of make him fit her philosophy. So instead of just being someone who's not that successful and quite quiet and subdued and generous, she turns him into basically a character in her book. On his passivity and his lack of work, she says, um, a withdrawal, not out of bad motives or cowardice, but out of an almost unbearable kind of idealism, which does not know how to function in the journalistic world that we see around us. And it's almost like, she sort of reverse engineered his behavior to fit yeah. a Randian novel. And that's basically her treatment of him. Physically, throughout. though, physically, he was a, he looked the part. So around this time, she loses her job uh, simply because uh, Cecil DeMille switches studios and just doesn't take her with him. Um, she complains she's been blacklisted by the communists who run Hollywood. She will get her own back. Keeps writing novels, plays, screenplays, looking for a break. And in the notes for one unpublished novella, she writes a memo to herself. The secret of life. You must be nothing but will. You must know what you want and do it. All will and all control. Send everything else to hell. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which is a tattoo that I'm getting now. 
So by the mid 30s, she's living in New York. Actually, writes a very successful sort of Nietzschean courtroom drama called The Night of January the 16th. Mm -hmm. And then she writes a very unsuccessful novel, loosely autobiographical story about Russian politics called We the Living. Mm -hmm. uh, didn't go anywhere. In 1938, publishes Anthem, which is a very heavy handed but blessedly short anti communist <laughs> sci fi dystopia, which is clearly ripped off from uh, Yevgeny Zamyatin's novel We which is okay. one of my favorite dystopian novels. Oh. And in the sort of, in the plot points and in the language and the themes, it's very, very similar. But obviously given the sort of the, the Randian spin, and the key line there is, I am, I think I will. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. She gets a contract for her next book, which is about architects called The Fountainhead. It meant to take one year, takes five. That's fair enough. That's relatable. In order to get through it, she starts taking the amphetamine Benzedrine, which she continues to take for the next 30 years. I haven't, I haven't tried that, <laughs> <laughs> but I don't knock it. Um, you always get these sort of descriptions of her where they're like, she's suddenly, she's just full of energy. She's an absolute yeah. crackling, charismatic force. And you're like, yes, well, I mean, there is the Benzedrine, of course. I mean, that may not have been That's internally it. sparked. It's all but... about the benzos. <laughs> now, I want to talk just before... Because I should explain here that, that in order to uh, share the labor, I read The Fountainhead, you read Atlas Shrugged. And by the way, and so don't think I've fucking forgotten this. Because I remember being outside the pub mm. and it was mm. after a live show. Mm. And, and I sort of said, oh, OK, so I guess you just do Fountainhead and I'll do yep. Atlas Shrugged. And you looked, you, there was a flicker in your face of like, oh, I mean, yeah, sure, if that's what you want. And, yep. and that was a fucking moment I realized I'd made a mistake. Because I think there's an extra three or four hundred pages. There is. Thing. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, I noticed the fact that you didn't say that at the time. No, no, no I thought that would be a fun surprise. <laughs> now, objectivism is not coined until Atlas Shrugged in 1957. So Anne Heller writes that she only had half a dozen heroes. Cyrus, who was a, a hero from a children's book that she loved. Uh, Victor Hugo, Serrano de Bergerac. Frank, her husband, Brandon, her lover, we'll come to that, Aristotle and the Founding Fathers. Spoilers. I know, sorry. Uh, the only contemporary novelist she ever praised was Mickey Spillane, who wrote hard-boiled detective <laughs> stories about good and evil. And the stuff she hated, boy, did she hate it. She would be very good on comment threads. Mm. Her big villain was Immanuel Kant, who she blamed for killing the Enlightenment with moral relativism. Mm. She called him the chief destroyer of the modern world. But then she also hated uh, like Tolstoy's Anna Karenina, the most evil book in serious literature. So like anything she <laughs> Is that a quote? Yeah. <laughs> so anything she didn't like was evil. I, I can go further um, go on. here. On Liberty by John Stuart Mill. Right. You like should that be, one. I, I'm kind of a fan. Should be a book that she loves. It's all about yeah. how do you stand up against sort of, you know, societal thinking. Her description of it is the most pernicious piece of collectivism ever adopted by suicidal defenders of liberty. Frederick Hayek, Hayek, of what, I've never seen someone criticize Hayek from, oh, he's just not committed enough to the free market, but she does manage to do it. She says, these are notes in the margins, the man is an ass with no conception of the free society at all. He's just too much of a socialist for her. Well, yeah, well, she's so anti-communist that she calls Animal Farm the mushiest and most maudlin preachment of communism I've read in a long time. <laughs> it's like she's killing all of our sacred cows at once. <laughs> and it's like, I honestly don't know how you can read Animal Farm and go, this is wildly pro-communist, but there we go. Um, but she did have, she did have a, a couple of influences that she didn't talk about, which was the kind of nascent American libertarian movement, which is a sort of fascinating, could almost be an episode in its own right. It's mm -hmm. fascinating, this early libertarianism. One of them was Albert J. Nock, who thought the society should be completely free from the state. So he didn't just oppose the New Deal, which is most conservatives did, but state education, income tax, uh, war, you know, defense, and so on. He was also anti-democratic and anti-Semitic. But he basically divided people into economic man who is productive and political man who is parasitic. Mm. And Rand takes that and it's the creators and the parasitic second-handers. So Rand's novels celebrate the economic man, the hard-working, autonomous individual. But Griesenock, the President Roosevelt, is essentially totalitarian, opposes intervention in World War II. And she thinks that the common good, the phrase common good, is, is a total scam. And the individuals owe nothing to the state or to each other. So not only is collectivism the enemy, as in, you, you, know, you might say, okay, Soviet collectivism, she would have a legitimate grievance against that, but altruism, Mm -hmm. Absolutely hate altruism. Doing anything for others is like a is, is a betrayal of the self. It's hard to get to the bottom of that bit, you know, because there's sometimes in a more generous mood she acts like 
you can do stuff for others as long as it's part of your values and you wish to do it. Yes. You know, and then it's okay. You, you can't ever put your, your own survival or your own self at risk to help others in no scenario. But if it's part of, if you think to yourself, I'm in a good mood, I want to help, you can help. What you yeah. can't do is there's no space for other thinking altruism it cannot start with them it must start with you so it's like it's slightly more nuanced than the selfishness that i associated with her but when you start to get into the sort of angles you like it, it is ultimately extremely egocentric which i suppose the clue is in the name of egoism <laughs> her, her creed I mean, I have been looking forward to this moment for some time. I am actually desperate to know what your opinion about Fountainhead is. Okay, so I was thinking of like why people say that she is a shit writer, right? Mm -hmm. And I think in order to hate a book or indeed a film, whatever, you must hate its worldview. And I think once you hate the worldview, you have to deny all good qualities. You know what I mean? There's a part yeah, of you that yeah. doesn't want to be like the film scholar who goes, well, Lenny Riefenstahl was a Nazi, but, you know, amazing... Mm -hmm. you know cinematography or whatever there is a point you always go well if she's if her ideas are shit then her prose must be shit i found that it and it wasn't I mean, it's both sort of better and worse than i expected because the writing i mean her descriptions of people are very 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 good mm -hmm. very very dry you know sometimes something she'd be really funny which surprised me because none of her characters are funny mm. but everyone in it is so horrible it's depressing because the thing is that the people she doesn't like the villains are horrible, obviously. Mm -hmm. But then the heroes are also horrible to me. Mm -hmm. This mm -hmm. is really, really hard. So there's like no one in it to like. Now, if not for wartime paper shortages, this the Fountainhead would, in fact, have been as long as Atlas Shrugged. Oh, so they were saved. Yeah, she cut one third of it. Huh. So it, was, it would have been about a thousand pages. So I'm quite lucky there. Were you taken in by the story? Well, um, should I, I should explain the story, right? Oh, sure. I mean, I, was I taken in by the story? Mm. I mean, that sounds like a no. I'm just going to put that out there. Okay. What I will say is you can see why she spread her ideas via the novels rather than essays. And the essays yes. are incredibly repetitive. She's not an elegant yeah. essayist. Um, and, and weirdly, she often quoted her own characters as if they were authoritative sources. <laughs> as if that's Howard Rourke said. And it's like, you made him up. Yeah, so I was quite taken in. And I could see why readers were taken in. It's sort of emotionally, I can see why it's emotionally persuasive, not to me, because after a while, I just hated everybody. I was quite <laughs> depressed. Um, but she's very, very good at putting opinions she hates in, in other people's mouths, in characters' mouths. Very good mm -hmm. at parodying them. But she's sort of, she's very good at sort of setting up these just awful characters to mouth things she doesn't uh, agree with. It's the story of Howard Rourke, a modernist architect who struggles to get work because he will not compromise at all. And like Ayn Rand, Howard is in the cold for a long time because nobody understands his genius. And then when he does get commissions, all of which are mind-blowingly brilliant, they are derided and misunderstood. And Howard was loosely based on the architect Frank Lloyd Wright. Mm -hmm. that He found this rather embarrassing and said, I deny the paternity and refuse to marry the mother. Because <laughs> she tried to befriend him and that didn't really work. And Rand, therefore, as a result, played it down and said, my research material for the psychology of Rourke was myself. Mm. Rourke has a few allies who are as stubborn uh, and uh, misanthropic as he is, including the newspaper magnate Gail Wynand. That's a male Gale. And the ice queen, Dominic Francon. His nemesis is Ellsworth Tui. <laughs> She's quite good with names. Uh, an architecture critic who wants the mediocre to thrive and the exceptional to be crushed. So he basically has this massive conspiracy to promote kind of bland garbage. Basically uh, based on Howard Lasky. Howard Lasky, the socialist, and also Lewis Mumford, the oh. American, just intellectuals, lefty intellectuals that right. she didn't <laughs> like. Eventually, I mean, there's a lot of, I really do mean eventually, because this is a long, long book. <laughs> eventually, Rourke is commissioned to design an affordable housing project. He doesn't agree with the idea of government housing, but he's going to do it uh, for, the, for the work, for the integrity of the building. But to his lackeys, medal with the design, and rather than see his vision diluted, Rourke blows it up. His trial enables Rand to stage the sort of final rhetorical battle between Rourke and the second-handers. No. Do, do we get a Rourke speech? We get quite a long speech. Uh, he says, the creator lives for his work. He needs no other men. His primary goal is within himself. The parasite lives secondhand. He needs others. Others become his prime motive. 
And he is attractive, I suppose, to readers because he doesn't need anybody and he doesn't care what anybody thinks. Like he's weirdly sort of, yes. nothing hurts him. No amount of rejection or whatever. He doesn't, mm. he does, he's not upset. He's not vengeful. He's kind of, he's just walled off from the rest of the world. He's like emotionally crippled. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously not, not how she sees it. Mm. And Rand argued that you have to respect individual freedom, but only of certain exceptional individuals, because actually the individuals that she thinks have made the wrong choices, she has contempt for. She dislikes most people in mm -hmm. the book and in, and in real life. It's a very negative vision that he has. So we're told that Rourke sees man as strong, proud, clean, wise, and fearless, which is okay. I mean, it's a little bit. <laughs> it's a little bit fashy, but, um, you know, okay, fine. But he has, he has no friends. This is made clear. This is my judgment. He has no friends, no fun, no sense of humor, no openness to other people's ideas, no liking for people as they actually are. Mm. Uh, here's this remarkable exchange between Dominique and a newspaper editor when she goes, well, we're meant to think of mankind as this wonderful, you know, this beautiful thing. Goes, but then you actually get to real people. Mm. <laughs> She says, there's nothing but housewives haggling at pushcarts, drooling brats who write dirty words on the sidewalks and drunken debutantes or their spiritual equivalents. One can feel some respect for people when they suffer. They have a certain dignity. But if you ever look to them when they're enjoying themselves, that's when you see your truth. That's your mankind in general. I don't want to touch it. And the editor's going, but yeah, people are flawed, but you know, that's human nature. He goes, what do you want? Perfection? She says, or nothing. So you see, I take the nothing. Hmm. Which, you know, I think is quite bleak. <laughs> I think that's quite a bleak view of the world. But, but it did make me think that actually a lot of her characters, they're socially inept, they're friendless, they're initially unsuccessful, they're completely misunderstood. Yeah. And I just want to open up this idea that the cliche is that her novels appeal to successful people who want to congratulate themselves on their success. Oh, interesting. But they also empower the sort of the difficult and the unpopular. Yeah. So this is appeal to losers as well as winners. Yeah. That's why she's very, very probably with, with, with quite awkward teenage boys. Mm -hmm. So it's the people who aren't Howard Rourke's but want to think that they are. Mm. Whereas I'd always thought, oh, well, this is the books. The book. You can see why millionaires like it. Mm. But it's actually for all these people who who aren't, who are nowhere near success. That's so interesting, because it's, it's not just like, oh, I'm a socially awkward weirdo. It's, I'm just too heroic for people to understand me, because people are so fundamentally sort of average and tedious and boring, that when they see genius, yeah. you know, they despise it. It's a, it's a them problem, not a me problem. Yeah. 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 What would you rate it out of five? <laughs> I don't know. It's very hard to... Um, <laughs> it's, it's very hard to, to do that. <laughs> But I, I mean, I would say that I, you know, I reject, I reject the worldview. But I didn't. There are books that I've hated reading more, oh, on yeah. on the level of like sentence and and plot. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It, like you can see that it sort of works as a as a novel, and some bits are very very good. But the more dog, the more polemical it gets, the worse it gets. And the whole reason she wrote it was to be polemical. Yes. Yeah. So it is a roaring success. Makes her famous at last. She moves to California, starts getting screenplay work and gets her revenge on uh, all those commies in Hollywood. <laughs> Testifies as a friendly witness in the House Un-American Activities Committee hearings into communist subversion, which we discussed in the McCarthy episode. Although you notice the way that she wanted to come back for a second day and they no, were like, we're no, we're, we're good. No. Just like the first She's person in the history of that committee that was like, no, please have me on again. Well, <laughs> she didn't think uh, Joe McCarthy went far enough. <laughs> that was the problem. And the biggest movie project is the movie of The Fountainhead, which eventually comes out in 1949. Joan Crawford, Barbara Stanwyck and Veronica Lake all lobbied for the role of Dominique, but it went to newcomer Patricia Neal. Uh, while it's in development, she tells the studio, do not underestimate the admirers of The Fountainhead. They are becoming a kind of cult. Mm. So until she realizes her power, she also makes this claim. The responsibility of making this picture is greater than that of knowing the secret of the atomic bomb. Oh, fucking Christ. The critics hate it, which means she feels terribly hard done by. And so therefore her success is ruined by the critics. Fantasy can be read basically as any as, as one long rant against critics. Hmm. I mean, Ellsworth Tui is a critic. Hmm. Every critic in it is, is appalling. Everyone who reads critics is terrible because then they're, they're sort of not making their own decisions. They're kind of just leeching off the decisions of others. So it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. But this year, 1949, is pivotal because she receives her first fan letter from a 19-year-old student called Nathan Blumenthal, who renames himself Nathaniel Brandon. Because we all need a good, strong Randian name. Why is he important? Well, he will create the world that she 
ensconces herself, really, I think, from the sneering of critics in the end. Because up until this point, she's desperately seeking that validation from intellectuals, from, from etc. And it pretty much never comes and never has come, not from, certainly not from academics. And instead, she goes down another road, which is that through him and his associates and his family, she starts to create a sort of subculture, really, that it has her at its head. But these are not her equals. These are all kids, mm. right? I mean, at the point that she meets him, you know, he sends a letter, they have a phone call, he comes over with his girlfriend, Barbara uh, Weidman. At this point, he's a first-year university student. She's in her 40s. There's a 20-year gap between ah. those two. And that really goes for everyone that they're surrounded by. I mean, they bring in all of their, all of their friends. So Leonard Peckoff, who would sort of promote her after, after she died, Alan Blumenthal. Barbara's childhood friend, Joan Mitchell, comes with her boyfriend, Alan Greenspan, later to basically run the U.S. economy, who at that point, I mean, she got, do, do, you know, do you know what Rand's nickname for Alan Greenspan was? Yes, I do, but I've forgotten it. I feel like now I feel like I'm on a special no, remind, is, it the, is it The Undertaker? It's The Undertaker. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> who, I think she really helps him, you know, because at this point he's just, he just deals in sort of numbers and all of that. And, she's, and she basically argues like, well, all of human desire is essentially kind of almost math- mathematizable, you mm-hmm. know? I mean, it, it can be thought of in those similar ways. And they form what they call initially the class of 43, and then also they call it the collective, semi-ironic. Yeah. But I think that that name becomes less and less ironic as we go, because really it's quite sort of homogenous, it's quite ideologically homogenous and oppressive. Atlas Shrugged, who was jointly dedicated to Frank and Nathaniel, Yes. Why was that weird? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so look, the, the, essentially you have this group of the four of them, you know, Barbara, his wife, Nathaniel, um, and then Frank and Ian. She eventually moves back to New York, basically for those two. In the autumn of 1954, Barbara's in the front of the car during a long car journey, and she's looking back and just watching for hours on end, Ian and Nathan basically just sort of cuddling and nuzzling and holding hands on the back seat. She's just like, well, what the fuck, right? So she, she takes him, she has a big blow up with Nathan that night, confronts her husband, he denies it. But the next day, Nathan gets a summons from mine. He gets a summons, he goes to her apartment, she sits there, very urgent, on a stool, and just says, we have fallen in love, haven't we? And he's like, well, I suppose yes. She's like, well then, it's time for us to kiss. So they kiss. But this has to be approached in an objectivist way. Right. And to do that means you must abide by rationality, by reason. And this is one thing that goes core to the philosophy, because at this stage in her life, partly in partnership with Nathaniel, she starts to develop it into a sort of a more almost epistemological, metaphysical system, absolutely consistent from start to finish. And, and quite simple, because basically there's three precepts, and they reason, purpose, and self-esteem. It's like getting your head around objectivism compared to many philosophical systems. Oh, you see, I found it I didn't find that hard. I found it very difficult indeed. Because I just couldn't understand why, because, you know, her thing is like, I'm going to build a whole moral system out of individualism. She thinks that she's the first person to do this. And there's all these very embarrassing notes she takes mm-hmm. of like, has anyone ever tried to do this before? And you're like, well, there is 300 years of liberal history that you could look to if you were aware of it. And it's, it's just this idea of like, the organism wishes to survive. All, all organisms, I think including plants, but, but certainly including animals and humans, wants to survive. It does so using reason. Therefore, the manner in which it should think about morality is the use of reason for survival. And from there, she goes to the free market system. But from there also, she goes to like the concept of art for her. The concept of art is essentially the sort of forming intellectual objects that bring together lots of values that can act as a shorthand for the human brain. Emotions, emotions are not thought of as existing independently from reason. They are a product of reason. They flow. In fact, everything flows from reason itself. And yet reason is only ever doing one thing, right? It's for survival. It's not bouncing off in lots of different directions. It points towards one politics. It points towards one set of emotional conclusions. And it also points towards one view of sex. And that's the romance and sex and all of that. It's not just this sort of chaotic human area. It is an expression of your values. So she ends up putting this, I mean, all of her philosophy is predominantly put in the, in the mouths of characters. So Francisco and Atlas Shrugged says, a man's sexual choice is the result and sum of his fundamental convictions. Tell me what a man finds sexually attractive and I will tell you his entire philosophy of life. All of which sounds <laughs> quite mad. Let him lose on Pornhub. <laughs> 
Right, but this, so this is the point where it's fully complete from the point yeah, of the yeah. organism, you know, all the way through to what art do you like, you know, what food do you want? It's all com- sort of completely controlled. It's worth briefly saying, I mean, philosophically, the reason that academically she's never had any purchase is you show this stuff to a philosopher and they're yeah. just like, well, this is just crazy. You know, I mean, it's just, there's loads of, obviously she's covering areas that have been very well covered for thousands of years. Just that this doesn't tally with anything. She's not aware of it. There's no reason why, you know, the, the current purpose of a thing should be based on why it originated. I mean, so you, if you take sex, so why, why does sexual desire exist? Because of the reproductive function. Mm. But no one, including Ayn Rand, thinks you should only have sex to reproduce, right? It's not clear that just because a re- you use reason to survive, that should be the purpose of the organism and the morality afterwards. So on the really ground level, you're in trouble. But you're also in serious trouble on the basis of her commitment to individualism. Because if you just have reason operating from survival in art, in sex, in every single aspect of things, you've essentially eradicated the individual because there is one right way to do these things. There isn't a multitude. There's not different bundles of values or different emotional states that we might have, all the things that make us us. She kind of just wipes it all away. So we would sort of become the robots that she supposedly fears. But I think, again, this, this, this sort of gets to the appeal is, is it's one way. Mm-hmm. It's it's a sort of it's a self help. Her books are essentially sort of self help books. Exactly. But it's the one way. It's like yes, it's so important to be the individual. But everything that ev- she had, there is a right way to do anything, and she will absolutely like lose her shit over the smallest disagreement. So this obviously plays a massive role in the way that these two proceed because they have to proceed according to reason. They have to think that their sexual relationship is not just, I fancy this person, it's the sum total of your values being expressed. So they call in poor Frank and poor Barbara and say, look, we've got a thing going on here. You have to give us allotted time, you know, each week for us to explore it. Eventually, Mm. of course, they start shagging and then Mm. they have to give them allotted time for that. Poor Frank goes off to some bar somewhere, I think on Tuesday afternoons when Nathaniel comes over. Poor Barbara has... Basically, a complete nervous breakdown, a complete emotional breakdown, which, again, Rand does her typical thing, right? It's not she's having a nervous breakdown because I'm having sex with her husband. It's she's got to sort of form it into her philosophy. She comes up with a new theory of emotionalism. Those who allow their emotions, not their reason to guide them, bases it on on Barbara. This sort of pathologizing of very, very normal human behavior in very abnormal circumstances. This comes from Atlas Shrugged. The whole reason why objectivism is named in 1957 is because she she thought people had misunderstood the fountainhead. She didn't want people to make the same mistake again. So <laughs> they have this idea. She, she also considered the names existentialism, already taken yeah. by the bloody French, but textualism and contextual absolutism. She did well to go with objectivism. Objectivism, yeah. Mm. And, you know, this book was so, this was like everything. She had poured so much into this. She had the first idea for the the book. It was called The Strike at the time in Mm -hmm. 1943, the year of the fountainhead. Mm -hmm. doesn't come out for 14 years. Uh, Her editor, Bennett Cerf, wanted to cut down uh, a 60-page speech Mm. by John Galt, about whom we will learn more. Very sensible man, that. And she replied, would you cut the Bible? (laughs) I mean, as an atheist... (laughs) A strange, perhaps, comparison, but yeah, you know, it was, it was, this was everything. This was, this was her life. This book could not possibly be misunderstood. It was everything she wanted to say to the world. Now, tell us about Atlas Shrugged. You read it. I'm very sorry that it was longer than Fountainhead and I didn't tell you that. Um, <laughs> Don't seem that sorry. I'm sure you whizzed through it. You know what I kind of did? Like, I, I enjoyed reading it. I consumed that thing. I mean, I find the plot fascinating. I think she writes plots really, really well. I really enjoy her writing. I found the characters really vivid. They're completely two-dimensional. I mean, they're basically like, it's like socialist realism. You know what I mean? Like, right. This is not a real character. They, they're trying to promote the ideology, but they're still vivid. I was intrigued by it all, super intrigued. It, the, the plot is essentially that the industrialists and the creators and the entrepreneurs go on strike, right? which sounds, I think, quite boring. But the way it's presented throughout the book is really that, you know, that there's all these sort of complicated industrial conspiracies and people just sort of disappearing out of nowhere with these really quite sort of shattering consequences. Right. And and so it's almost a bit more like watching an episode of Lost. You know what I mean? Ultimately, your fundamental thought as you're you're reading it is, what the fuck is going on? Which is a great thought for page turning. And it's a great book for page turning. I really, really enjoyed this book until you get to that John Galt speech. 
because who is because who is John Galt? Mm. Which is a kind of you know the libertarians like the Tea Party movement would put it on placards or whatever. Ted Turner, question... the founder of CNN, put up billboards all over parts of America right. saying who is John Galt. It, so it runs real, through yeah. the book. And am I right that John Galt doesn't appear until quite late in the day? Very, very late. Very, very late. I mean, you're saying yeah. There was a point where I sort of looked up. I think after 700 pages, I was like, oh yeah. So lead character still hasn't shown up yet. So who is John Galt? <laughs> he is. Essentially, the ringleader of these industrialists who've gone to this special kind of sci-fi island sort of thing that can't really be accessed by the rest of the world, where they've set up their purity capitalism right. utopia. Yeah. Um, very odd place. Uh, but you don't really discover that until much later. And uh, he's, he's actually kind of the most boring character in the whole book. Good job he has a 60-page speech then. Oh, shit. Well, the speech... Okay, so the, well, the funny thing is... The speech is where I lost, it was a real, that's just where I lost all my fucking patience. Because suddenly, what I thought was so genius about it was like, it's obviously it's different. The reason, one of the reasons I was so interested to hear your opinion on Fountainhead is because of your work on 1984, which is obviously in the same realm of like, let's, what's the political, you know, achievement and message we can get through literature. Mm. And I thought, obviously, this is not 1984, just in terms of the characters. I mean, the things that Winston does and says in 1984 are not in aid of ideology. They're bizarre. Mm. But it, it, I just, I was so impressed by the idea of someone being a, trying to get out politics in this really page-turny, thrilly way. And then he comes on, and it's just like, oh, now I'm just going to fucking write out my manifesto and put it in his mouth while he's on TV. And you're like, oh. And then she goes through all of the stuff, you know, reason and the survival mm -hmm. of the organism and your views on culture. One good moment earlier where she's achieving what she wants to achieve better than that. It's this character, Francisco, and he does a speech on um, money is the root of all good. And it's much more limited. I mean, by limited, I think it probably is about mm. sort of 10 pages. But it was very good. It was to me, you remember when we talked about Hayek and the price point, like the godhead of the market mm. in the neoliberalism episode? It's like the literary version of that. And in that moment, you can see what she brought them. You know, what, but you know, all the stuff from laissez-faire, it's always dusty, academic, Ludwig von Mises and, you know, like, she comes in and it's just, it's fucking sexy and muscular and dynamic and it's all glamorous people doing mm. dangerous things and, but it's all for the good of money, you know, and, and you suddenly get it there. It goes wrong really with John Gold and, and it never recovers. It never recovers from the speech itself, nor from the fact that she had to put that speech in there. Because by virtue of doing it, she gets rid of what is so impressive about her, which was her ability to communicate yeah. political ideas through sort of mystery plot. You don't finish it thinking that was a wonderful book just because the ending is so bad. But on the way there, it is so odd and so bizarrely impressive in the very tiny area of humor endeavor, human endeavor that it is covering that I kind of would recommend it, actually. Well, sadly, uh, for Ayn Rand, the critics did not agree. <laughs> um, here, here are some... And in f the highlights from the reviews, the Washington Post, uh, this is a story of conflict where it's equally possible to hate both sides. <laughs> the Chicago Tribune, is it a novel? Is it a nightmare? The Los Angeles <laughs> Times, it would be hard to find another such display of grotesque eccentricity outside an insane asylum. <laughs> she, she even gets called a fascist, which I do think is unfair because the whole Completely thing right. is meant to be about sort of freedom and not coercion. You yes. don't coerce other people. Yeah. And so that I thought was maybe something that it's quite normal to call a fascist. No, it's a form of very extreme right wing politics, mm -hmm. which is very much not totalitarian. It's not authoritarian either. Yeah. I mean, it's just not. It's, it's a bullshit thing to say. But as a result of this terrible hammering that she gets, um, it should have been a triumph and plunges her into a three year depression because she thought nobody can misunderstand me this time than they did. And there's actually a very poignant sense of shame because her characters don't care if people don't oh, get it. Oh, mate, that's so interesting. So she actually writes in her diary, John Galt wouldn't feel this. I, oh. would, I would hate for him to see me like this. Oh, oh, wow. She's really kind of, she's almost made him. Yeah, and now he disapproves of her because she's weak and depressed oh, by, the fact, by the critics. And one thing I do find interesting Really interesting about her is that she epitomizes the problem of being too principled. We talk about <laughs> how important it is to be principled. Isn't it wonderful if you stick to your principles? But this is what happens when you just won't budge at all because she's, she, she was in with the Hollywood conservatives. Now she's sort of falling in with the kind of the new wave of, of, of post-war conservatism. They love her celebration of capitalism, you know, and uh, support for Barry Goldwater, the very conservative Republican candidate. But the atheism is a big problem. She described mm. Christianity as the best possible kindergarten of communism. 
So massive falling out with with William F. Buckley, falls out with her former best friend and mentor, libertarian writer Isabel Patterson. Um, she says she's not a conservative, actually. She's a, a radical for capitalism. And she departs from conservative orthodoxy on key issues. Because she's against coercion, she's pro-choice on abortion and opposes the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. She's homophobic, but she's anti-racist because racism is the lowest, most crudely primitive form of collectivism. Mm-hmm. But then she did oppose the Civil Rights Act and quotas because mm-hmm. they were a form of coercion, et cetera, et cetera. But it's a real jumble. And so she sort of has to find her own space. In 1962, she launches a newsletter, which becomes a magazine called The Objectivist, which is where she publishes most of her articles. And this is where I suppose we can return to what this collective, what this cult fan base essentially consisted of. Yeah, I mean, they, they treat her, I mean, they call her the prophetess at one point. They treat her like God at this stage. And I think as those critical assessments become more severe, she retreats even further into these much younger, almost borderline sort of religiously motivated figures. And then it's important to know, again, I think this thing of the complete system, that there is a right answer and there is a right thing to like. Objectively, I mean, I guess, again, (laughs) clues in the name, right? So it's not exactly this bubbling, vivacious, intellectual, you know, hodgepodge at all. You're supposed to agree with her and Nathan, who's essentially second in command. Nathan taking on an increasingly sinister role, by the way. He sets himself up as a therapist, admitting he has no fucking interest in psychology at all. You know, listens to people's deepest sort of, you know, their insecurities, their phobias, their traumas about their sexuality. But then also, he is the witch hunter general. So if anyone falls out of line, there are these great big sort of social trials, essentially, where he is the prosecutor. These are deeply humiliating, painful moments. Barbara says about Rand, she more than went along with them. She approved. But Nathan was the instigator of those terrible sessions. And these really caused terror among the participants. That's interesting because Nathan then later says... Ian had disappeared into the alternate reality of Atlas Shrugged and was not coming back. Something was gone and gone irretrievably. Huh. So there was a sense in which she was becoming rather, I mean, I don't know. I don't want to diagnose, but she, she was becoming deeply eccentric and paranoid. Mm. And as some of her former followers said, ironically, Stalinist. Yes. And one of them said, in all the years I knew her, I never heard her say anything remotely to the effect that she had acted badly, mistakenly or unfairly. So in some ways, she's like this sort of dictator, but she's also, this comes across in the Anne Heller book, a still a spoiled child. Mm-hmm. She's still obsessed with the stories and music of her childhood. She's kind of a mess. Like physically, she's just a mess. Like very, very kind of, you know, very chaotic. Like bad, still taking the Benjadrine. Bad hygiene. Still mm-hmm. taking the chain smoking like mad. She likes, she starts wearing a black cape. Yes. Which was inspired by Supergirl. Oh, what? Yeah. Huh. Which is a very sort of childlike yeah. reason for somebody who by this point is in her what, 50s. Constantly feels let down. Not only can she not find the right allies, she can't even find like a worthy adversary. Well, she doesn't want to, she, what, But she, she says that she does. She, she says, says she just she wants does. somebody that's just sort of impressive enough to really disagree with. Like she finds, she set this idea of this is what mankind can be. And I do mean mankind, not humankind in Ayn Rand yeah. terms. Yeah. And... And she's constantly disappointed. So it's like, in some ways, like an idealist. But it's just so, what she thinks the world should be is so removed from what she wants the world to be that what some of her readers found therefore aspirational, she just finds absolutely, you know, consistently sort of depressing and, and horrifying. And there's a 1967 debate between Brandon and uh, a psychologist. And during this... Brandon is Nathaniel. Nathaniel, yeah. The psychologist calls her characters unreal and impossible. Rand is in the audience. She gets up on her chair and screams, am I unreal? Am I a character who can't possibly exist? (laughs) And it's like, yikes. There's a quote from um, Murray Rothbard, a libertarian, who goes to one of these sessions. And he says, their whole manner bears out my thesis that the adoption of her total system is a soul-shattering calamity. Her followers are almost lifeless, devoid of enthusiasm or spark, and almost completely dependent on iron for intellectual sustenance. Like there at this point, it, it, it is a cult. 
at this stage. Well, this is I want. There's a kind of contemporary resonance here. The Brandon, who's the guy that Nathan who builds the the Rand industry, mm-hmm. describes his public speaking style as omniscient and inflammate. These are not. <laughs> oh my god. These are not real. This sounds fucking unbearable. These are not real words. Um, but it means act as if you know everything and stir up the emotions of the audience. So even though it's meant to be about ideas and logic, it's really a kind of pseudo religion. And this this does remind me. Sessions of Jordan Peterson, sort of messianic version of mm-hmm. self-help with a very kind of shaky armature of, of intellectualism, utterly humorless, extremely popular with kind of confused teenagers and young yes. men who yes. feel good about themselves. You could see something extremely sort of, that, that, that omniscient and inflammate is a very successful formula. I think, I mean, you mentioned him before in a conversation. I just think that is absolutely spot on, that he is... The current version of her, because even the vision of man, you know, even his thing about like just eat red meat or whatever. Yeah, it's this sort of about being hard and tough and not caring what anyone thinks, and yes, utterly without humour and full of judgment. And yet, of course, it's like 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 incredibly thin-skinned. Yes, he's very descriptive. Don't care what anyone thinks, and he's always crying because people are being mean to him. I also think that's why the reviews are so bad. By the way, that's what that's kind of the key. If someone right now gave us a novel of his to review, we would almost certainly, I'd like to think we're better than this, but we would almost certainly shit all over it and know that we're going to shit all over it before we even started. And I think that's where they would have been at the time. You kind of need this much distance to sort of go in trying to be fair to her. You do. You do. I honestly was amazed. I honestly, because Anthem, the prose is not very good in Anthem. So I still thought, even having read one of her novels, oh, well, she's just not a good writer. And I was genuinely surprised. Like, oh, no, put the ideas aside. There is a fair amount of talent there on that level. Oh, yeah, definitely. But I think at the time, it was just almost unacceptable. It, you either, it was purely the ideas. Yes, yeah. Look, at this point, I mean, the, the collective are basically going mad. So we've got one student there says, there was more than just a right kind of politics and a right kind of moral code. There was also a right kind of music, a right kind of art, a right kind of interior design, a right kind of dancing. And on everything, absolutely everything, one was constantly being judged, just as one was expected to be judging everything around him. It was a perfect breeding ground for insecurity, fear, and paranoia. And again, by the way, you see that they are eradicating the individual. They're eradicating the very thing that she supposedly, you know, has so much faith in. And in that environment... Yeah, you're meant to have your own opinions. She says in The Fountainhead, you're meant to have your own opinions on art and whatever. And the worst thing is that when people just go along with critical consensus and say that some things and basically kind of outsource their critical judgment to others. And yet she creates an environment where there is one line and you have to follow it. Mm. It's wild. (laughs) It's wild how much it contradicts what she is meant to be for. So at this point, Nathaniel's in his early 30s. She's about to turn 60. She's very weepy, lethargic. She ends, um, she ends the affair. And he meets Patricia Gullison, who is a 23-year-old model. He divorces, Patricia divorces, and clearly something starts going on. But he just doesn't have the confidence to tell Rand this. Why not? Because under their system, you cannot just have grown out of an affair or mm. not fancy someone anymore, any of that. A rejection of her physically is a rejection of her intellectually, as values, as, as the entirety of what she is to him. And he also thinks, I mean, by this point, he's making quite a lot of fucking money. Oh, yeah. You know, he's got the, the, his own institute promoting her stuff all around the country. He probably doesn't want to ruin that. So he says to her that he's, this is incredible, he's experiencing sexual block and he needs therapy from her to work his way through it. That therapy and that sexual block goes on for five years, at which point he is having this affair with Patricia. Now, eventually, Barbara, who at this point he's, you know, broken up with, he tells her, she says, like, you've got to tell Rand or I'm going to tell her. So he says, fine, you go off and tell her. Finally, the whole thing comes crashing down. So he's called to her apartment. She calls him an imposter. She beats him around the face. Her last words to him are, if you have one ounce of morality left in you, an ounce of psychological health, you'll be impotent for the next 20 years. And if you achieve any potency, you will know it's a sign of still worse moral degradation. Which, to be fair to her, at the end of an affair is not the worst yeah. parting shot you, you, can, you can offer. She then breaks up with Barbara. And in the next edition of the Objectivist magazine, there's a letter from Rand saying, I've permanently broken all personal, professional and business associations with Nathaniel and Barbara Brandon. I repudiate both of them totally and permanently as spokesmen for me or Objectivism. 
a letter, which incidentally is signed by Alan Greenspan, <laughs> which wow. of all the weird, yeah. contorted, bizarre elements of American history, that might be right there in the and, top And 10. he gets erased from the um, dedication page. Erased from the dedication page. It's worth remembering at this stage, a line from Atlas Shrugged, observe the ugly mess which most men make of their sex lives and observe the mess of contradictions which they hold as their moral philosophy. And you see, I think that's interesting. Because that is not true in any case you can think of apart from hers. Because in her case, the sort of constrictions and the restraints and the suffocating oppression of her total philosophy of life ends up dismantling her own life, her own marriage. I mean, the marriage survives, bizarrely enough, poor Frank, again. You know, but and the friendships, the organizations, the intellectual culture that she's in, it all falls apart because of those sort of deranged restrictions. Eventually she becomes, I mean, doesn't die until 1982 of heart failure, but, you know, really like, you know, things are going badly for her from, from the early 60s onwards. She becomes a paranoid, intolerant, obnoxious. She writes an essay called The Fascist New Frontier, which compares John F. Kennedy to Hitler. Then Kennedy mm. gets assassinated. And I think her editor goes, do you, do you want to change anything? She goes, no, <laughs> still, still believe that. <laughs> You know, so the last sort of she, she sort of gets quite quiet. This is a lot. It's a sad decline. Yeah, and she Frank likes, dies. She's Frank dies. She dies a few years later. Um, she likes to say, "It is not I who will die. It is the world that will end." <laughs> That's a classic rat line, which is absolutely <laughs> extraordinary. Um, so there we go. She was somebody that you say had been remarkably successful, and that often felt that she had. Um, Often felt that she'd failed, that she was never really un understood. She never had the right uh, followers. She never had the right allies. She was let down by everyone, except Frank. Frank, who never let her down. Yes. Although, but she always seemed, you know, I don't think he got that much credit for that from her until he was gone, really. I mean, it's when he dies, she becomes quite obsessive about him. Mm. But until then, he was kind of, he was, he got pretty rough treatment. I mean, you know, he never... He, you know, he got very nice houses. I mean, they had lots of wealth because of her yeah. and, and all of that. But uh, he was pretty hard done by it. Lisa Duggan, who's written a book about Ayn Rand, talks about the neoliberal theatre of cruelty. Uh -huh. as the particular branch of neoliberalism uh, that Rand was popular with. Now, obviously, we're not going to retread neoliberalism, but but she did kind of chime with the real, the militant end of that, the von Mises end. Well, she? Mises loved her. I mean, they they fell out, obviously, but but he loved her. I mean, he said, this is fucking gold. This is what he wrote to her after he finished reading Atlas Shrugged. You have the courage to tell the masses what no politician will tell them. You are inferior, and all the improvements in your conditions, which you simply take for granted, you owe to the efforts of men who are better than you. I wrote that one down as well. It's, <laughs> it's fucking astonishing. Quite a lot of the quotes by Rand and her admirers seem like when the villain in a movie explains yeah. their plan. Well, I mean, to be honest, when I was reading Atlas Shrugged, I thought there was a moment where I thought, this feels like the novel that Lex Luthor would have written if, yeah. if he was literary, basically. It does feel like a supervillain. And I think there's lots of people in the sort of neoliberal wing, at the, even at the time, who were like, we should be quite careful here because it's almost like she's a, a left-wing caricature of, of what we believe in. She has moments, I think, early in her life where she's, she's a bit more democratic. But generally speaking, she does sort of view the masses as this sort of dreadful, dirty, you know. Well, like, I suppose, Hayek, whatever, she's, she's most sympathetic in that period of totalitarianism. Which yes. is very anti-fascist. She's very anti-Stalinist. Yeah. And it is a legit period. That is that period in the, in the 40s when a lot of people, a lot of extremely right-wing people, mm -hmm. you know, made the right call on those, on those things, on the matter of totalitarianism. But it's later. <laughs> we, I'm afraid we have to part ways. I asked um, some sort of British libertarians and free market guys, you know, what they made of her and what her role is now. They, they pretty much universally sort of said she doesn't and never really did have too much of a British impact. Mm. I mean, has never appealed that strongly here. But even now has a very strong American impact in those circles. Yes. And that it is always, almost always the young. And that it's a particular type 
Right. Okay. Because I mean, because it's it's different. I mean, you know, philosophical as well, it's different to sort of anarcho-capitalism, and it's different to the old sort of laissez-faire kind of Hayek economic sort of guy. It's it's a kind of this is essentially sort of rock star neoliberalism, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. You know, and and it's it lost so much of that. You know, which you know, right-thinking young person looks at Hayek. You know, the sort of awkward Austria. You know, sort of thinks, oh, this is great you know i want i want I, I want to follow this guy of course not right but with her it's everything's dramatic and heroic and sort of crackling with sexual energy and iconoclastic and rebellious you know Galt's phrase in that book to the world essentially saying it to a bunch of cameras but his phrase to the world really is just get out of my way and that's the thing. It's like the rage against the machine right. of neoliberalism. No, but that's like. it. Because that almost that counter, the, the way that it appeals to part of the counterculture, the way that it appeals, like Oliver Stone wanted to remake The Fountainhead with Brad Pitt as Howard Rourke. Zack Snyder wanted to remake it. Now, that does not surprise me no, at all. No. And I think perhaps what's missing, I was looking at some of the criticisms of when she was put on the A-level syllabus. Around that time, there were some articles written about her. Critic Christopher Bray said that she sold elitism to the masses. Right, that she made she yeah. made her readers feel special. Jonathan Frieden called her Gordon Gecko with A levels. You know, greed is good, but kind of dressed up as a philosophy. Mm-hmm. But what I think perhaps that they're missing is, like you said, the, the the drama of it, the excitement of it, and the simp- and the and the simplicity. Mm-hmm. You know, it's something where you just don't have to think too deeply about it. It's sort of you too can be the thrilling hero of your own life. Yes. Your failure is, is not your fault. Anybody who gets in your way is is just a kind of jealous loser, is a hater. Yeah. In, yeah, yeah. In, in yeah. hip hop speak. And there's this a fantastic Playboy interview from 1964 where um, Alvin Toffler asks, and it just shows how narrow her view of human life is. Mm-hmm. It says, couldn't the attempt to rule whim out of life, to act in a totally rational fashion, be viewed as conducive to a juiceless, joyless kind of existence? <laughs> And she replies, I truly must say that I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> he also asks, in Atlas Shrugged, you wrote, there are two sides to every issue. One side is right and the other is wrong, but the middle is always evil. Isn't this a rather black and white set of values? And she says, it most certainly is. I most emphatically advocate a black and white view of the world. <laughs> she essentially thought that the idea that the world was complex was a scam. Yes. The nuance itself was a kind of fraud that the second-handers and the altruists were trying to sort of pull on you. And actually, it's very simple. And I sort of admired in a weird way the fact that she just went, yeah, no, it's extremely narrow. It's extremely simple. It's negating in many ways. And that seems to be what is so powerful. And that, again, is why I think of that audience that, that, that Jordan Peterson has most powerful to young men who want to get somewhere, but maybe they feel that they haven't got there. And even the very successful people that like Ayn Rand, they're often not complacent people. You look at so Elon Musk, you look at Peter Thiel or whatever, they still feel like picked on oh, and misunderstood. Yeah, yeah. It's a very thin skin thing. Yeah, yeah. What's, again, what's weird about that is that's not how Rourke at all. Mm-hmm. And Rourke yeah. is just like extremely self-contained, you know, nothing can touch him. Well, the thing is that her her plots are conspiracies. You know, yeah. the things that are stopping these people from succeeding is the conspiracy of the collectivists yes, and the yeah, blah, yeah. blah, blah, and the altruists. So it therefore transpires that, you know, that psychologically you're going to treat this, this as it's not my failings because I somehow fucked this up or I need to learn something different. It's that there's a conspiracy around me. This stuff does kind of, you know, her thinking is sort of ankle deep conspiracy theory kind of stuff. Yeah. It's very sort of soft focus, but it's always there. It's it's no such thing as just people actually might just be Keynesians or they might just be socialists because they believe in social justice. They're there. It's like, no, they're out to restrain yeah. and destroy the creatives of the world. I think the moral lesson to take from this is that danger of complete systems, which is particularly attractive to the young. And I say that, by the way, as someone yeah. who I, I was seduced by that kind of stuff when I was young. I wanted that. I wanted someone to just say to me, no, we've got it all sorted out. Yeah. You know, it's just this. Uh, they, You are susceptible to it at, at that age. And she provided it to them. And every letter you see written to her, you know, it's always like you gave me the, I mean, one person wrote, you gave me moral sanction for existing. You know, it's that kind of thing of like, oh, thank God I found the light. It's so potent. Offered that. And I think both of us could see that potency didn't feel it ourselves mm-hmm. to 
too old and <laughs> withered, withered, nuanced <laughs> to feel this kind of empowering. You know, this, this is the, the empowering simplicity of it all. Mm-hmm. Um, I just wanted to sort of end, maybe mentioning this great novel by Tobias Wolff called Old School, where boarding school student in 1960 becomes obsessed with Ayn Rand just for a little bit, and it's a great insight into that mindset. Which makes George Saunders, the novelist, George Saunders, right. was massively into Ayn Rand as a young man, mm. you know, and he's become the antithesis of that. One mm-hmm. of the kindest, most generous writers. So I do think you've got to understand why does it get some people, some people listening to this, perhaps they also had a phase. And this is just so good on the phase. He goes, for once I had a complete picture of the world. Over here, a few disdainful rorks and a few icy Dominiques. Over there, a bunch of terrified nobodies running from their own possibilities. It was the personal meaning that had me enthralled, the promise of mastery achieved by doing exactly what I wanted. Mm. And he walks past a shoe shop and sees a shoe salesman fitting a shoe and gets filled with Randian contempt. And he goes, you, is this your dream? To grovel before strangers, to stuff their corns and bunions into hush puppies? And for what? A roof overhead and three squares a day? Fool, men were born to soar and you have chosen to kneel. Oh my God. And then she visits the school as part of this visiting writer program, treats everybody appallingly. You know, she comes with her acolytes. And it's, the spell is completely broken, he says. The problem was I could no longer read Ayn Rand's sentences without hearing her voice. And hearing her voice, I saw her face. Hmm. And he felt that he had been, that the person had let her down. And there's a line in The Fountainhead that Gail Wynan says, he goes, I never meet the men whose work I love. The work means too much to me. I don't want the men to spoil it. They usually do. They're an anticlimax to their own talent. Hmm. And I wonder whether this sort of the tragic dimension she becomes an, an anticlimax to her own talent or, or a sort of a living repudiation of her ideas, you know? And or actually what she illuminates is the mess of humanity, the vulnerability, the paradoxes, the ways in which you, you know, you, you sort of, you cannot live up to your purest ideals. And, and that's where I ended up feeling quite a lot of empathy. Yeah. And look, at the end of it, even though I think she accidentally works to sort of smudge and destroy the individual, she was at least a really good example of the kind of thing she wanted to see, which is she was herself a real individual. And there is a story of triumph there, you know, in the end of like you get there penniless to Hollywood and you create a political cult Mm. at which you lead with a cape and a cigarette on a long holder and the sort of iconography of the dollar sign everywhere. You sort of think like, well, fair enough. I mean, you wanted to do this kind of thing and you actually really did do that. Yeah, but did did it it make her happy? It did not. It did not. And therein lies another lesson. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much. Uh, We're going to wrap that up now. We will be back next week. I should say thank you as well to Kate Andrews and Dr. Eamon Butler, who both helped me um, try to make sense of what the hell we just spoke about. And if you'd like to communicate with us in any way and give us, you know, tips or advice or tell us we got something wrong or preferably right, you can just email originstory at podmasters.co.uk. And as usual, the works that we read will be mentioned on the show page next week we'll be talking about culture war if you'd like to hear that episode a week early i.e right now you can support us on patreon and thank you to everybody supporting us already because i don't think ian could have got through atlas shrugged without the knowledge that you were rooting for him <laughs> no it's the, it's the money i need to feel <laughs> like there's at least something coming out of this terrible it, terrible it's, psychological it, torment it's it was capitalism essentially that motivated <laughs> But then it's Patreon altruism. This is the problem. It's capitalism or altruism. It's a it's a it's a tricky one. Would Ayn Rand would Ayn Rand have a Patreon page? Anyway, we do. <laughs> Thank you very much, and we will see you next time. Season two of Origin Story was written and presented by Ian Dunt and Dorian Linsky, with music and audio production by me, Jade Bailey. The group editor is Andrew Harrison, and Origin Story is a Podmasters production.